Hello, it's John Thornhill, the regular host of Tectonic here, with a special bonus edition of the podcast. Earlier this year, my colleague Madhumita Merger and I made a series about quantum computers, asking if this revolutionary technology is really going to change the world, as a lot of people claim. And a few weeks ago, we hosted a session at Founders Forum, a conference for tech startups and investors, where we spoke to some of the people building and investing in quantum computers. We asked them about the promise of quantum computing and the state of the industry today. So this is a recording of that session. It features Steve Brierley, the boss of Riverlane, a company that's building the algorithms and software for quantum computers. Ilana Wisby, the CEO of Oxford Quantum Circuits, a company building commercially available quantum computers. And Herman Hauser, an investor in quantum technology. It's a really fascinating discussion. And if you like it and haven't yet heard our series on quantum computers and technology, all six episodes are available right now in the Tectonic feed. So here we go. Tectonic at Founders Forum with me and Madhumita Merger. Hello, everybody, and welcome to FT's Tectonic podcast. Um, we're live from Founders Forum in sunny Oxfordshire today, and I've got with me three of the most fascinating people in, in quantum who are going to talk to us. So I've got right here next to me Steve Briley, CEO of Riverlane. Um, we've got Ilana Wisby, who's the CEO of Oxford Quantum Circuits, and we've got Herman Hauser, who's the co-founder of the VC firm Amadeus Capital, amongst, among other things. I'm Madhumita Mergia, um, the AI editor at the Financial Times. I'm John Thornhill, the innovation editor. And Maddo and I have just concluded a six-part podcast series on Tectonic about quantum computing. And so we thought we'd pick out some of the themes that we were discussing in that series and fire them at uh, our guests today. So, Steve, I'm going to start with you. Uh, one of the things that we discovered um, in going around and talking to people about quantum computing was that there's a huge amount of excitement in this field. But the dirty secret of the industry at the moment is that they don't actually work really very well at the moment. Um, and so, you know, with the computers maybe have kind of 430 qubits or so on. And everyone was telling us that you need a million qubits to do something really significant. Ilana is shaking her head already. Very angry. Um, <laughs> can you tell us um, how quickly do you think we will get to a robust quantum computer? And what are the challenges that we face in getting there? Yeah, I think it's worth starting by saying that building a large, reliable quantum computer is one of the biggest challenges that uh, humanity has taken on. You know, the ability to um, harness the properties of, the, uh, uh, of, of nature, of, um, of atoms, uh, transforms how we can understand nature itself, uh, transforms how uh, new products could be built in um, industries like in healthcare or in addressing climate change. You know, quantum computers will be used as a tool to, um, to design on a computer when previously and currently we, um, uh, the best methods are to, to experiment in a laboratory. Um, so you know, when I founded Riverlane seven years ago, uh, many people in the field thought this was impossible. A large-scale, reliable quantum computer could never be built. Um, at the time, I thought they were wrong. And the reason is that I think what Moore's Law teaches us is that if you improve every 12, 18 months uh, consistently, year on year, this compounds in a way that makes um, the thing you build after a decade look like magic. Right? The phones we have today, it, it appears to be magical. 
Um, and the same is happening in quantum computing. So as you said, like the best quantum computers in the world have hundreds of qubits. And indeed, um, the, the number of operations we can do before failure is on the order of 100 quantum operations or quops. And to do something really impactful, we need to get to a trillion quops. So I think there are two major uh, challenges to, to, to do that. Um, the first is to increase scale. So we need bigger systems. We need more qubits, so to go from hundreds to hundreds of thousands, and then ultimately millions. And the second is to improve the reliability of the system, the components, and then um, process the uh, and correct errors as the computer is running. And that's what you're doing at Rivling. Could you just briefly ex uh, explain to us what, how you're trying to tackle this problem. Yes, that's right. So our part at Riverlane in this problem is to process the data as it comes out of the quantum computer. Um, at a, a teraquap, at a trillion quantum operations, uh, we're talking about 100 terabytes per second. So just to give people a sense of that, uh, that's Netflix global streaming. Um, so we need uh, to be able to process this in real time so that we can correct errors as the computation is running. Um, so today we have small demonstrations of this, um, and every uh, 12 to 18 months we intend to 10x the size of the system. So essentially um, uh, increase the, the scale of the problem that we can solve so that by the end of the decade we can get to a, a teraquap quantum computer. Ilana, um, we one of the things we were we explored in our in our series was you know why do we need these machines. Why are we putting all this money and effort and, you know, all of our scientific sort of news into it? Mm -hmm. um, what's the excitement about, you know, your company has said that we're on the brink of, a, of a, an incredibly lucrative shift. What, what are the applications? How are we going to make money off of it? Yeah, I, th I think what Steve started touching on there about how you know, fundamental this, this is and how, you know, this really is transformative. We're thinking about being able to harness the underlying quantum mechanics that exists around us of nature and apply that to solving problems that are fundamentally intractable, right? It's just, it's hugely transformative across pretty much every single market vertical out there. It's like solving the problem of problem solving itself. And the customers that we have on our working live systems that are in data centers accessible by our customers today, right? They are running optimization problems. They're looking at small scale molecular simulations on how they're creating potentially new batteries, new pharmaceutical. We're working with finance. They're doing risk optimization. They're looking at creative portfolio <coughs> analysis. We're working with automotive on how they'll be able to um, better simulate. These are all live. You know, of course, we do need full fault-tolerant quantum computation. That's the path that we need to head towards. But I don't believe that's a million qubits. There is business impact significantly before them. It's a commercial sector that is thriving in a market that is rapidly growing today. And I think we need to be a little careful about not getting lost in the noise of we, we do need to build a million qubits and, and we do need to reduce our errors. But there is impact already and customers do need to make sure that they're getting quantum ready and the market needs to be quantum ready, which they'll only do by engaging with the hardware, with developing the algorithms. And then I think in the next three to five years, and I think there was even the paper you'll have seen, um, Jay Gambetta from... Um, IBM uh, that was collaborative with uh, other universities in, in the US, which is moving more towards um, quantum advantage, right? And that's, that's going to be a transition that we're going to start to see, where you do have this business impact um, in the next few years. And then ultimately, you know, the quantum future is seamless, fault tolerant, 
every time you are running an existing, um, you know, your Excel, right? Every time you open your laptop, you're interacting with a data center with a full stack, with error correction, with all these different things. We have no idea what's going on. And there's a, a huge industry, there's partnerships, there's collaborators, there's competitors. And that's the quantum future, is that you've got your quantum processor, your classical processor, and you're, you don't even really need to know that it's a quantum computer at the back end. But we have solved currently really challenging problems. And, and that's you know an opportunity of a lifetime to be involved in creating this industry together. I think that's that's phenomenal. Um, could I just follow up to say to ask, when we do get to a fault-tolerant sure. million qubit dream world quantum computer, what are problems can we solve that we mm -hmm. can't solve today? What is our, what, how are we going to go beyond mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. making today's problems? So, so first of all, I'd, I'd say it's probably realistically with the right error correction schemes, we can bring that million down to 10,000. Um, and that's from our back-end work and our projections for what, what hopefully we'll collaborate on some error correction schemes will look like. Um, these types of problems, they are, can you imagine a world where we've been able to create new drugs and take that 10-year life like pipeline down to simply taking it from the wet lab into a computational space? And you can start to think about how you could then apply different machine learning type algorithms. So there's really a plethora. I mean, every single challenge that, that we currently face that's either limited by data or limited by an understanding of the, the world around us, like quantum mechanical world around us, these are all the type of problems that you can solve. And, and that's across pharma materials discovery, really understanding energy band gaps for the first time. So you can use it to understand physics and then the impact of that physics that will apply, but also from a data perspective. I mean, the Netflix problem is not a high impact problem, but it's one that generally people understand more. And that's how can I start to optimize my my data and, and solve multivariable complex problems, you can apply that to any type of optimization through automotive. Um, and we're thinking about you know, 10, 15 years, we've got a, an increasingly connected world with more and more sensors, more and more data, more and more processing requirements that right now we won't be able to solve or it'll be very energy intensive to solve as well. And quantum also has a role to play in that in, in terms of reducing the, the um, energy intensity of these types of, of problems that you'd be able to solve as well. Herman, I'd like to ask you about the investment case for quantum. Uh, lots of VCs at the moment are getting wildly excited about generative AI. Um, you are investing heavily in quantum. Can you tell us why? Well, um, quantum computing is one of those very fundamental step changes in computing. Uh, having had the pleasure of contributing to the classical computing stack quite a few years ago, uh, there are some uh, analogies. <clears throat> um, you know, of course, you need a physical hardware, you need um, silicon or, or, or whatever, and then you uh, go up the stack with, um, through the error correction problem. Uh, and some of these things are analogous to the, to the classical computing stack, and some are really quite different. And error correction is a classic example. Looking with hindsight, uh, we've got error correction on all our computers, of course. Uh, memories are faulty. Uh, there are lots of uh, errors in your, uh, in your memory, in your uh, mobile phone. But we correct them uh, with error correction schemes that, looking back, almost seem trivial compared with the problem that we have with error correction uh, that uh, Stephen is working on at Riverlane. Uh, it's a mega problem. Uh, in um, 
quantum computing because uh, the, the qubits are so fickle. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at the reliability of a qubit and compare it with the reliability of a bit in classical computing, it's really many orders of magnitudes uh, worse, and you've got to, uh, got to fix that. Uh, but the reason why the investment case uh, is so exciting is that when you have bits uh, and you increase the number of bits, the performance of a classical computer scales linearly with the number of bits. Uh, a quantum computer uh, scales exponentially with the number of qubits. So the, the actual compute power uh, that you will finally reap from a, com a quantum computer is exponentially higher than that of classics. And as uh, Ilana said, it will be able to solve uh, many problems and actually many of the most interesting problems that classical computers cannot solve at all. So it will be a big market. And from an investment perspective, are you investing more in the hardware or the software? Uh, in the whole stack, uh, really. Uh, I've got a number of investments on, on the hardware side. Uh, Steff is here from Photonic in, uh, in Vancouver. Uh, I've invested in a number of um, uh, software companies. And then there is one company in the world that's actually an, art, an architecture company, and that's uh, Parity QC here in the front row with Wolfgang and uh, Magdalena. Uh, that's uh, hoping to become the, the arm of the quantum computer uh, field because uh, Wolfgang found uh, a, an architectural advantage of moving from the qubit space, uh, which are these very fickle things, to the parity space, which is just a little bit up. Uh, but these, these parity bits are just this very much less fickle so that you can build uh, you know, great advantages uh, with it, in particular the parallelization. Uh, Stephen uh, talked about the terra uh, crops that we need. Well, it depends a lot on how many uh, um, uh, computations, quantum computations, you can do in parallel. Uh, and one of the things that uh, Parity QC solves is this parallelization problem. As you were saying earlier, you were involved in kind of building ARM uh, in the classical computing world. Um, can you make more comparisons between the, the, how that classical computing era kind of took off and where we are now in quantum? So uh, one of the great excitements for, for somebody like me who, who lived through the classical computing stack was uh, we started in a world where IBM took the sand off the beaches, produced the chips, uh, put it on circuit boards, created the operating system, uh, invented the languages, uh, wrote the uh, software for it, delivered the computer, serviced it, and then at the end of the day, took it away from you again. So it was a completely vertic vertically uh, integrated stack. And the, the interesting development in classical computing was that these uh, interfaces appeared first at the INGOT, that IBM didn't have to produce the pieces of silicon, but there were other companies that did that. Then there, were, uh, there was a slot for operating systems, and Microsoft uh, became you know, a very important company. And then there were software companies on, on top of it. The exciting thing about uh, quantum computing is that these interfaces haven't crystallized out yet. So it's not clear yet where these interfaces will appear. I think everybody believes that error correction is going to be one of those uh, interface problems where you, you would like to have an interface both below uh, and above. And uh, what I've learned over you know, many years of making venture investments is um, <clears throat> companies have a reason to exist. 
if there is a clear interface at the bottom and a clear interface at the top. So a clear interface towards their suppliers and a clear interface towards their customers. And if you can define that interface, then you have a, a, a business. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Um, we talked, uh, you talked, Ilana, earlier, you touched on hybrid situation, right, where, and we also mentioned this briefly in our in our podcast, but we couldn't get into it too much, where you have both the quantum and the classical computing mm. working together in the interim period mm-hmm. before we scale up. Um, maybe, Steve, you can jump in here and talk about what are the use cases, you know, now um, for a sort of hybrid model of, of quantum and, and classical computers? Uh, yeah, so I think of quantum computing and as being always hybrid. Um, you know, we are not quantum mechanical uh, beings, <laughs> we're classical, um, and so we need to interact with the quantum computer in some uh, classical sense. So um, parts of the problem are always going to be better suited to the quantum computer and some parts to a classical computer. So we're not going to use quantum computers to send email, um, but we will use them to model some of the really complex hard parts of a system. And so there are lots of ways that people are developing to make that work. Um, so-called embedding methods where you sort of um, model a system at different length scales and you put the really molecular uh, modeling on the quantum computer and the kind of higher length scales on a a traditional HPC. Um, I think, as Herman was saying, like the industry hasn't yet figured out how best to integrate that. And I really like the work that Alana's doing, kind of working with um, HPC or data centers to start making that happen already. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about what you are doing? Yeah, definitely. So we certainly see that the future is going to be hybrid. We need to be able to have CPUs, QPUs, all interacting at the same time, and QPUs being our new quantum processing unit, right? And the users to be able to interchangeably interact between those types of units at super low latency, so you can perform these type of hybrid algorithms. So with that in mind, OQC is building production-ready systems, right? We need to be able to test these systems in real-world environments and build the infrastructure. And, and ideally, for a customer, that needs to be seamless. So if, you, if you're a customer and you decide that you want to try and test one of these hybrid algorithms and you go to your chief information officer and you say, hey, I want to provide all of my customers' private data and give it to this little quantum computing company out of their lab in Oxford, they're probably going to say no. But if you're able to say, hey, we can simply add our QPU to our existing data infrastructure and then also be able to have super low latency between our existing classical compute modules and our quantum compute modules, that's a compelling business case. And this is exactly what we're doing. So at OQC, we've deployed our next generation systems into the world's leading infrastructure, and that is partnership with Equinix. And we have our next generation system, Toshiko. All of our systems are named after pioneering women in STEM. And Toshiko is in Tokyo, in a leading data center, which has got 12,000 plus large corporate customers with huge data processing needs. 
And from a point in the very near future, it's going to be announced um, very shortly when Shijiko comes online, you'll be able to simply add a QPU to your existing services. Um, so that's one route, is to make sure you can have seamless access, low latency. We've already become a magnet customer, so we've seen quantum software companies, but also existing um, you know, users from our POCs buy racks right next to Toshiko so you can get the super low latency, direct interconnect, secure access, which is phenomenal. And the second thing that we're doing, as Steve mentioned, is integrating with high-performance compute. So the future of compute will be classical quantum data centers, but high-performance compute centers as well. And um, we are deploying um, a different system, uh, next generation, again, 32 qubits, into Sesca, which is in Galicia in Spain, partnered with Fujitsu, which is a phenomenal example of both competition and cooperation, and they're providing the quantum emulation piece. We're providing the hardware so that the academics at the supercompute center will be able to interact and, again, do this high-performance compute classical quantum integration there as well. So they're just two examples of, of what we're doing. I'm very interested in who's going to win, as it were, the, the quantum race. Uh, I think we have a bit of a stacked panel here, but um, is it going to be more the kind of big tech companies who can afford to plow billions of dollars into this development, or is it going to be the startups who are, see a real kind of niche advantage in a particular area and can build on that? So, Herman, what do you think? I think the race is wide open, uh, both in terms of which of the considerable number of technologies, be it superconducting, ion traps, uh, neutral atoms, uh, photonic, uh, and uh, silicon-based uh, electron spins uh, will win. And these are all very good horses in, in the race. And then where the really <clears throat> innovative companies like uh, Ilona's uh, with uh, uh, you know, university teams that uh, clearly are on the top of, uh, of their uh, intellectual game, uh, will uh, be able to raise enough money uh, to be real competitors with Google and IBM, or whether the, the sheer weight of uh, money of large companies will win out. And, um, you know, history has examples of both. Mm -hmm. So it is uh, not knowable at the moment. <laughs> Ilana or Steve, do you want to make the case for the startups? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, the, every major shift in technology, whether that's the internet created companies like Google or um, mobile networks that created essentially Arm and uh, Qualcomm. Like all of these companies were startups at one point and you had a big shift in technology. Quantum is as big as those shifts. So I see every opportunity to create the next trillion dollar company. Mm. I can add, there won't be one winner. We talk about this, you know, as if there's a, a one horse winner, there's not. There's going to be multiple. If we look at the existing classical compute, you have different supercomputers, compute infrastructures. It's a very rich and dense ecosystem, and I see that as the future for quantum as well. Um, obviously, I'm massively biased, and I certainly think you know, I wouldn't be committing my life um, to this if I didn't think that first it was going to be used for incredible good, but second, that there was um, a chance that we are certainly deeply competitive and we are going to win. I'm very confident within that. But um, I think actually Vivek, um, the CTO of Fujitsu, said yesterday you know, he thinks it's the smaller companies that have the advantage here. Yes, you have IBM and Google with significant amounts of money, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a done deal. And right now, a lot of the challenges that we need to focus on, you, know, you can build large systems, right? You can say, I want to build a thousand qubit system. 
you're just wasting money. You're not getting any more performance out of that larger system. We need to iterate on smaller systems, optimize the performance, work on error correction. If you had, and the world's most powerful quantum computers out there today are the 21, 30 qubit systems, they're not the hundreds of qubit systems that exist. You're adding cost, not performance. So, go ahead. I can just uh, add one, uh, one argument in favor of the smaller companies uh, and, and the diversity that uh, Ilana mentioned. Uh, if you just look, uh, look back at, uh, again, classical computing, uh, the reason why classical compu computing managed to uh, support such great variety of different uh, companies uh, was just the sheer size of the problem space that classical computing uh, managed to address. And here we've got the most amazing expansion of problems that will be amenable to quantum computers. So this is potentially going to be a very large market. Uh, and uh, small companies are traditionally uh, much more agile to uh, adopt the right solution for a particular problem than large companies. So my hope is on small companies, that's for them. I'm backing because it's difficult to back Google now. <laughs> Speaking of backing companies, you know, what's the role of government here in terms of supporting, whether big or small, you know, supporting actually the development of the technology itself? Um, whoever, any of you can jump into that. And then the second part of that is kind of where does the UK sit um, globally? Are we in a position um, to provide that support and to drive forward the technology um, from here? So do yeah, we I think the that? answer is, is simple. Um, government should buy stuff, um, early prototypes, uh, this is exactly why Silicon Valley is in Silicon Valley, is because NASA was buying the early prototypes of integrated circuits. Um, so we know this works. Um, you know, the UK is taking on um, the US, um, uh, Germany. There are lots of big uh, countries that are making large investments. Um, China has a completely different model, so a kind of state-owned, effectively, model, and investing huge amounts of money in, in quantum computers. Um, so I think where the UK can win is, being, is by being smart at uh, where it spends its money. Um, the UK has an advantage because it started earlier. So 2013, there was a £1 billion uh, investment in quantum technologies, um, and you're seeing the benefits of that now. I mean, that's why there are so many great quantum companies uh, in the UK. Um, but the UK has other advantages. So it's great at photonics. It's great at uh, semiconductors. Um, or chip design because of companies like ARM. And so I think we can uh, leverage that and, um, for example, build the chips that power quantum computers. Ilana, any thoughts on what government, uh, governments should be doing? Yeah, I mean, I certainly echo, echo what Steve says here in that government as a customer, I think, is a fantastic way to create that market pull. Ideally, the ecosystems will thrive if you make sure that you have got the, uh, the, the healthy um, government market pull, and that's what we need. Um, so, and government can support that, sorry. So if you, if you have government procurement alongside private investment, both through VC, but also through customer investment, that's going to drive the innovation. That's going to make sure as a, as a delivery focus, we partner with the right people to deliver on that service. Um, and that's what the UK government are doing a really fantastic job of as well. So we see procurement both through um, 
basically uh, government vehicles with government as a customer. We have many contracts in that way, but also we see government playing a role as an investor as well. So we have um, funding through the Breakthrough Fund, which again is a fantastic example of government investing into this type of technology through different mechanisms. And yeah, they were pioneering the early scheme of pushing um, with the quantum program in 2013 out from academia. And I think they've been quite pioneering as a model that's being replicated around the world as well with the pull. Um, we'll let Herman have the last word here to wrap up what, what we need most in this moment to drive forward. <clears throat> well, uh, I've been lobbying for government procurement for 20 years, and it's very nice to see that at least in quantum, it's actually doing it. The two and a half billion uh, that the UK has committed to the quantum industry is, is very welcome. And we need this innovative procurement, not just for quantum, but really uh, across the tech sector. But uh, I'm afraid I've got to uh, end on a bit of a scary story about uh, government uh, spending. <clears throat> uh, um, a recent uh, McKinsey report has shown that uh, the, world, uh, the world's government are going to spend 30 billion on uh, quantum computing and 15 billion is spent by China. So out of the total world spend, half of it is spent by China. So we, uh, we really have got to get our skates on. All right, we must wind it up there. Uh, I think it's proof that this is an incredibly interesting field at the moment. It's not all about generative AI at the moment, although <laughs> you might not discover that from all the other tents in this uh, session. Um, but enormous thanks to Steve and Ilana and Herman for a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Tectonic at Founders Forum earlier this year. My thanks to our guests, Steve Briley, Ilana Wisby, and Herman Hauser. Listen to the whole Quantum series if you haven't already, as well as our other fantastic Tectonic seasons, including the latest on the past, present, and future of social media with Elaine Moore. I'll be back in September with a two-part special on artificial intelligence and how it could help us talk to animals. A really amazing story, and then later in the year, Maddo and I will be back with more AI, a whole new series about superintelligent or godlike AI. We're asking if Silicon Valley is really developing machines as intelligent or even more intelligent than humans and what that might mean for humanity. The AI apocalypse, maybe, coming soon on Tectonic. Subscribe and you'll get those episodes as soon as they're published. Thanks for listening.